This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver. It has been 10 years since Mayor Michael Hancock signed Denver's urban camping ban into law. That means 10 years of sweeping our unhoused neighbors around the city, hoping that our problems will just go away. But they haven't. So to mark what some activists are calling Denver's decade of doom, I sat down with Westward reporter Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh and Denver Homeless Out Loud co-founder Benjamin Dunning, because I wanted to understand why this terrible, awful, no-good policy is still on the books and what Denver should be doing instead. Today is Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Cool. Are we on? Okay. Well, welcome back to CityCast Denver. It's Friday. Uh, we're chatting, and it happens to be the week of the 10th anniversary of Denver passing the urban camping ban. Um Advocates uh, and activists in the housing and unhoused community are calling this the Denver's decade of doom, um, which I find to be apt for the situation. And I wanted to talk to two different people in this conversation about uh, the experience of this camping ban, as well as the legislation and the the path that we've been on and we've how we've found ourselves here in 2022. So I'm here with Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh, Westward Reporter. Hi, Connor. Hello. And I've got Benjamin Dunning, co-founder of advocacy group Denver Homeless Out Loud with us as well. Hi, Benjamin. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Benjamin, I really want to start with you. I, I wonder if you could just explain what the camping ban means to you. To me, it means that um, a city that wants to um, make people go away instead of provide for them. I mean, that's pretty much it. You feel like that's what the legislation was meant to do. So when the, so when the camping ban hit, and at the time I was homeless and out on the street, uh, there was no such thing as Denver Homeless Out Loud. But right. what there was was an Occupy encampment that had been in town for 18 months. Now, uh, people who have advocated for homeless rights in Denver over the last 30 years, one of the things that they've advocated for is for when people can't fit into the shelters, that uh, there be some sort of a tent city or something available. Um, Catholic Worker was involved in this. St. Francis Center was involved in this uh, in various different ways. But, you know, the leadership in Denver is like, we don't want to have that visible homelessness kind of stuff. Mm. So what happened with the Occupy encampment Initially, you know, you had all the social activists there running the camp. But as, as time went on, you know, the homeless community also became part of the camp. And it was the first time people could leave their stuff in a place and they didn't have to worry about it getting stolen. 
They didn't have to worry about people messing with their stuff. And they could go on and try to do other stuff. It was the first time people had a place to stay. And it was right in front of where all the politicians and lawmakers who wanted to make these folks go away. So we're, we're thinking like, so that's what, what folks really wanted versus being told, well, you can't be on the street. Why don't you go to a shelter? So what used to happen in those days with the shelters is during the summer months, there was a certain number of beds available. And in the winter, they would have overflow. And so there would only be a certain number of beds. And then in the winter, they would open up more so that people didn't have to freeze to death out on the streets. If everybody showed up to the shelters, and I've been there on those winter nights when everybody's showing up to the shelters and there's not enough room for everyone to squeeze in. But the city, when the legislation was introduced, got funny with the numbers about what was available for shelter beds. So they would report the winter numbers but not uh, report the true numbers in the conversations. So there was always this big side argument about how many shelter beds are really available. And they still use that strategy today. Yeah. They tried to convince people that there's enough places for people to show up at a shelter. And this doesn't even get into the question about whether a shelter is appropriate for folks or not. Right. So, Connor, I would love for you to talk about the camping van um, and, and kind of what it says about Hancock's approach to homelessness. I would say that uh, the camping ban is potentially symbolic of Hancock maybe not thinking of homelessness um, from the root initially, kind of thinking of it as, um, let me take care of the symptom of homelessness you got to remember, like Hickenlooper was the first mayor to really dig into homelessness. And Benjamin's uh, shaking his head no. <laughs> well, I found that Hickenlooper was really the first mayor to dig into homelessness. Whether he did a, a good enough job is certainly up for debate. Sure. So, so there's a lot of talk about how Hancock, when he came into office, this was not his issue that he really wanted to deal with. He wanted to focus on other things. And so the camping ban is a way of saying we're going to deal with the symptom of homelessness, but we're not going to deal with the root cause. And there may have been other ways that they wanted to deal with the root cause, but that what was really at the top was kind of dealing with the symptom, which is unsheltered homelessness, people living on the streets. And and so I think it's been a long journey for the Hancock administration to, I think they have come around to dealing more with the root of the issue, but certainly they weren't there from the start. Okay. He had no idea what was going on in homeless land. Um, and so, and that was typical. Um, so when you mentioned Hickenlooper, um, he was he started talking about homelessness, but it was more of a photo op kind mm. of thing. It was more of an awareness kind of thing. The infrastructure in order to solve the issues, they didn't go to, which was um, part which is part of the story of. Are you guys familiar with Eric Sullivan? Oh, mm -hmm. oh Sullivan at the. Uh of the hope program homeless opportunity for people housing and opportunity for people, people everywhere because the 10-year um the 10-year plan to end homelessness was more of a marketing kind of thing a lot of cities adopted that they adopted a 10-year plan to end homelessness yeah and it was a marketing and awareness kind of thing um the whole thing for denver's road home was they were supposed to collect good data um and we discovered that they didn't they got there were several audits like you were supposed to collect good data and you never did. 
Um, so, so then Denver had a five-year housing plan that didn't lead to anything. I mean, the plan was to build 10% of what the need was, and then they only built 10% of what their plan was, and then we wonder why things are getting worse. So they bring in this guy from Philadelphia who used to run housing uh, – program at a, at a city level uh, from Philadelphia. That was Eric Sullivan. Yeah. Well, he and the mayor did not get along after after a while. Um, and after having several interactions with him, you know, he was saying like, well, this is where the big money is. And this is how you get all of this stuff. And this is how you build all these things. And the mayor wouldn't go there. And so they had their, you know, they had their falling out. They couldn't get on the same page, you know, and within about a year and a half or so, he was out of the city. I want to go back really quick, Connor, to the the Hickenlooper part of the conversation because I think you painted this really interesting picture that was so Hickenlooper to me in your story about, you know, he saw two gentlemen sleeping in the doorway of his brewery or two soon-to-be brewery and was like, hey, let's put these guys to work. Um, Do you feel like he really had an understanding of how much bigger of an issue this was than what he maybe was seeing right in front of his face? No, I I mean, he he definitely didn't understand the full scope of the issue in 1988 when he told me, he's like, we had these two bums sitting in my vestibule, and then he realized that he's a U.S. senator, and he's like, wait, that's not politically correct. We had two guys sitting in the vestibule. And I I think he he did, the, the 10-year plan to end homelessness was a federal kind of idea let's rally all these cities together let's come up with this ambitious slogan we're going to end homelessness within 10 years so although hickenlooper gets some flack sometimes for not ending homelessness it was more aspirational than anything else like he he wasn't going to end homelessness if he had and the other cities had then it would have been great but the problem was the funding really wasn't there they they only spent a few million dollars each year on homelessness. And so because of that lack of funding, there wasn't a deep dent um, that that was kind of needed. One good thing that did come out of the plan was Hickenlooper was able to cut chronic homelessness by like two thirds, which was actually really impressive. But then the recession hit and so it kind of put everything back to square one and then even worse. And so it kind of erased all the gains. Yeah. Gosh. I like to forget that part of time, but I remember very clearly the recession in 2008. And I was working in retail and I went from 30 hours a week to four hours a week. And like, how do you live? I mean, if I wasn't living rent free at my mom's house, I wouldn't have, you know, I mean, it's just... I think we forget sometimes how much that impacted folks. Well, you would have seen me out on the street because that's when I went homeless was, you know. Tell me, tell us about that, Benjamin. What what happened for you at that time? Um, I went homeless. Yeah. Um, this is about the camping ban, not about me. So, <laughs> um, and so when the camping ban hit, you know, I'd been on the street for about three and a half, four years or something like that. Um, I had this idea that I was going to start this ministry and I was going to teach people about homelessness because nobody knew nothing about it. And I was going to tell them. So, you know. So you did, though, right? So um, um, so my so my friends said, like, oh, they're talking about this camping ban. You've been talking with these important people with your big plans. Go on down there and find out what's going on. And so the word on on the street was people were afraid that because of Occupy, 
folks were just going to get randomly arrested because they were upset about the occupying encampment. That was, whether justified or not, that's what people were afraid of. Um, they were also thinking it was more about the 16th Street Mall. Mm. Oh, they just wanted us off the mall, right? It's just about the mall. It's just off, just off the mall until Councilwoman Fotts decided to make it citywide. Um, you know, with an amendment. So you started Denver Homeless Out Loud kind of talking about... Oh, no. No. No, that... The, that came Yeah, later. Denver Homeless Out Loud didn't, didn't happen until six, nine months after uh, the camping ban had passed and enacted. So I get sent down there. I'm not a social activist. Homeless guy with a backpack and a sleeping bag hanging out of, uh, off the bottom of it, you know. Um, and at the time, I had no idea what Hickenlooper did or didn't do. And it was obvious Hancock didn't know what he was doing when it comes to homelessness. And what I saw at City Hall after being sent down there by my friends, so I saw a bunch of social activists yelling at the city. I saw a bunch of um, uh, business owners salivating at the opportunity to get this piece of legislation that they wanted. Um, I saw service providers being overly politically correct. I'm supposed to say this, but I can't say it too strongly. That's a tough position to be um, in, for sure. And um, I saw um, our churches absent from that. And I saw this line of people sitting up on this dais just waiting for the tide to come in and the tide to come out because their votes were already set wherever they were voting. And so that's what I saw. Um, and so, you know, there was no talk of Denver homeless out loud. That happened later. Some, some folks decided that they were going to do a study about the effects of the camping ban because the city had made a lot of promises. And they said, well, who was that guy over there? He should. And so they gave me a call and, you know, amongst us, we started Denver homeless out loud. Can I just add one thing that, yeah. that what Ben was saying made me think of it's, so in the camping ban has a, a precedent in 2005 yes. when, when Hick was mayor, Denver City Council passed an ordinance that prevented people from sitting or lying in the downtown Denver area. From, sit lie ordinance. Yeah, yeah sit lie ordinance from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. And it also, they tweaked with that same ordinance, they tweaked with other ordinances that related to panhandling and and so that was kind of a mini um, camping ban, a mini criminalization of homelessness in 2005, but it wasn't citywide. And so that's the key difference between the sit lie ordinance and the camping ban is that, and Albus Brooks, the sponsor of the camping ban told me, he said there were some who were saying, oh, maybe we should just extend the sit lie ordinance to certain other parts of town kind of extend out from downtown. But then he was saying, oh, no, that would just kick the can to another area of town, which I think is an honest way of viewing the issue like we see with the camping ban, right. although it is city wide. When there is a sweep, it kicks the problem to another area of town and then they do it again and again and again and it's it is kicking the can down the road but just somewhere else well there's some history yeah. with that it didn't develop that way so initially when the camping ban was passed um the the the, the chief was saying like we're going to have this light touch and they kind of ignored people for a few months but then they began to show up at encampments at two three o'clock in the morning and said grab your stuff and go and if you can't carry it it's gone um, and so that kind of stuff began happening. And then as time went on, um, 
during those days, uh, people who were sleeping on the ground, myself being one of them, um, we didn't use tents and stuff. We used uh, city structures for cover, overhangs and things like that. That was that was the norm. Uh, folks who were using tents were typically up by the river. Um, and since that was a focus of development of what they were going to want to develop in the future, um, they began to do sweeps up at the river. But what happened with the folks that they would sweep from the river, they would show up at the rescue mission and the and, and, um, and, and Samaritan house with all their tents in front of that. And so there was this back and forth that went on for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, something to that effect, where they would sweep them from there. They wind up at the river. They'd sweep them off the river. They'd wind up from there. And so that was highly visible tents and that kind of stuff. Most everybody else was hidden um, and, and trying not to be noticed um, because, I mean, that's part of what the sit and lie ordinance was. It wasn't a sundown law. It was a sun up law. We don't want to see you in the daytime. It's all that we don't want to see you versus, you know, how do we how do we get people housed? Yeah. Connor, though, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the 2005 sit like because it's sort of ordinance because it lays the groundwork for what we saw in 2012 with the ban, the camping ban. Can you talk about that, how it came to be, where the camping ban came from legislatively? Well, the camping ban, I, I think, was championed by a lot of business groups, a lot of groups representing downtown, really wanting to kind of deal with the issue of homelessness, the, the issue of visible homelessness downtown. Um, and so Albus Brooks, he was kind of new to council. He was uh, considered someone with political potential, and he took it up, it almost sounds like naively, is the way, is the sense that I get. And they crafted an ordinance and before talking with service providers, they crafted it. And so it was more of a, here's what we're, we've come up with to service providers and we're gonna do this, what do you think? So it, it created a, an immediate backlash in that service providers like John Parvensky of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless we're, we're telling him, no, this is not the right way to do it. This is going to make our our work much more difficult. So there was a, a almost complete lack of collaboration. And then there was no buy-in from anyone who worked with people experiencing homelessness. There was a ton of buy-in from the business community because mm -hmm. they really wanted this to pass. And so just from the start, it was... It was not best practices from the perspective of people working with people experiencing homelessness, and so it 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 didn't it didn't get off to a good start from the jump. Yeah, it sounds like it was sort of inherently flawed in the sense that, like you're saying, the folks working within this situation were not consulted. Well, the end result was it was illegal to sleep on public or private land in a system that didn't have enough shelter beds to house everybody, in a system that didn't have enough housing. Um, and so you had a section of people that were criminalized just by being existing. They did not make an allowance for people who had a need other than to not be seen. I think it's important to note that Although Denver gets a lot of flack for its camping ban, it is not unique in the American landscape right. for having totally. a camping ban. This mm -hmm. is a tool that municipalities use across the country, some before Denver, some when Denver did it, and some after Denver, and mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of the norm. 
Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. I think it's important to say we are we are unfortunately not unique in that. And these are uh, decades old uh, iterations of laws that originally. Those mayors meet at conferences and they copy each other. Sure. Uh, sure. I mean, it's <laughs> like any I mean, it's like um, any other field, you know, where we get together and collaboratively talk about what we're doing, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Sharing best practices on how to sweep encampments. Mm-hmm. Well, and mm-hmm. I just think about the disability advocacy history of issues like this, which is uh, laws like this began many, many decades ago to keep people who were disabled from being visible in the world. Um, so it's, it's, it's not new. You're right. Um, and it's not, it's not uncommon. Um, Benjamin, so Hancock's justification for the sweeps is that they will push people to these service providers and shelters. And he's really always stood firm on that. So that's what Albus used to say is a carrot with a stick behind it. Okay. But uh, Britta Fisher will tell you, who she's the director of, of of host, she will tell you that there is not room for everybody. Yeah. I mean, for the first time, we have something organized, working on trying to get people housed at the city level, something that I would have hoped would have started uh, earlier. Um, and she will tell you, no, there's not a place for these folks to go. We're working on it. We're working on it. We're making improvements. Um, but there isn't a place for everybody. Uh, but what you he will hear from people like Brooks and from Hancock and from the, oh, there is places, they just don't want to try hard enough. Mm, And so there is this shaming element uh, because as folks that are in leaders of the community, they fail to provide something for folks so that they had a place to go. They are blaming the victims in this. Um, And so, I mean, and we've done it with other marginalized groups, people who are victimized or or, or have, um, you know, either economic or physical disadvantage or whatever, they blame them, they shame them, and they use their power to take advantage of the whole community. And that's really, really unfortunate. And that narrative, every time it comes up, y'all in the reporting business, y'all need to challenge it. Um, you know, uh, because like that's I fair. mentioned before, because um, Britta gets asked, well, how come these people aren't in places? And she'll say, there's not enough places and we're trying to work on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to her credit, she's being honest. There oh, yeah, isn't yeah, yeah. enough. Yeah, she's been up front. She's been, you know, I mean, we've had a lot of interaction with her over uh, since she's come into town. She, and seems- she is an appointed position and they do have limitations, but, you know, they're doing what they can. I mean, Connor, you mentioned the big issue is money. We're playing catch up with the housing. Yeah. Like uh- we're, it's, we're so far behind and it's just like we're scratching the surface. Well, one of the things yes. that people won't have a conversation about is what to do in the meantime. Um, and so the Fair housing point. is not there. People need a place to go. Um, you know, there's not enough shelter space. And a lot of it's not appropriate for a lot of folks. So what can we do in the meantime? And it's an idea that's been around the city for over 30 years um, and that sort of, um, you know, organized tent encampments. Because yeah. what we have right now is disorganized tent encampments. And that's been a problem. You know, it's dangerous for folks that are there um, because the city isn't providing any kind of trash removal services. They get messy over time. And so, you know, it, it's a stupid response to a great need. Also, the other thing is, is we share our parks with all different kinds of activities. 
you know. So the at our old office across the street, there was a park that had um, this was Sunny Lawson Park had a baseball field, a basketball court, picnic area, exercise equipment, um, a, a children's playground. There was a garden there and they held events there. And everybody knew that you didn't take the barbecue pit and take it out to the pitcher's mound and do a barbecue. <laughs> you know, we've been we know how to share stuff at parks. Um, and so I don't see any reason why we couldn't take space like that. And then, you know, have a portion of the park be a place where people can camp. Now, what you'll get is you'll get people, well, they're going to take over the park. Um, but that's not true because people don't take barbecue pits and take them out to pitcher's mound. You have an area that's allowed for that. You know, um, people schedule, you know, softball games on softball fields and you can't go out there. So, you know, you have it organized. So you think that that could be one solution, as you're saying, there's many there's right. I mean, so we have the, it's to share know, we parks. Have the sanctioned encampments, but that's more of a, you know, that's a lot of people are, are self-sufficient enough that they don't need that kind of support. Yeah. But the political portion of the city would like you to think that because that's a way of getting you to think that the whole community is uh, is corrupt or and unruly and, yeah, in some way. But I would push back a little bit and say that the sanctioned, the SOS sites do provide the things, some of the they're things you are. They're good they do, yeah, yes. So, they're, they're so providing. this isn't a slight against them, but yeah. I'm, I'm thinking it's it's a niche need, but a lot of people are self-sufficient uh, enough to where without having that kind of money, that without having that kind of support, if they just had safe places to sleep, trash, the bathroom, and have their trash removed, it would be fine. Um, I really want to jump to, really quickly though, Connor, I want to talk about, there's been numerous legal challenges to the camping ban. Um, and there's been one effort to withdraw it citywide on the ballot. I remember that initiative. And I mean, it was a tough fight. But um, why do you think this policy remains in place when so many people say and feel it's a bad idea? I think so many people say and feel that it's a bad idea. But I think the business community says it's a good idea. And I think a lot of people in Denver actually prefer having a camping ban. I think we saw that. I mean, although the initiative in 2019 wasn't just about the camping ban, I think a lot of voters viewed it as a referendum on the camping ban, and it kind of got crushed. So I think there are a lot of people who prefer having the camping ban in place. I think most people in Denver are somewhere in between the two extremes of like, yes. there are some people who are like, let's ship them to Kansas, yes. which is, you know, absurd but and then there are other people who are like no we need to let people stay wherever they are no matter what i think most people are in between but i i would say the majority of denverites prefer to have a camping ban in place and i think that's that's why it's it's stuck around even even with constitutional challenges um some some which have found to have been found to have great merit these constitutional challenges I would disagree with that to 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 a point okay. as far as most folks um, being okay with a camping ban, because um, when when you look at the legislation in 2019, a large portion of the narrative like, well, these people that introduced this legislation, they meant well, but they, you know, but they wrote it up all wrong mm. and it's going to have unintended consequences. Yes. And that was part of the sales job that the business community used in their effort to prevent it from passing. So um, so I don't think um, that that's indicative. There was an early poll that was done 
on the referendum uh, by one of the local uh, uh, news station. It was two to one in favor. Um, and that was several, I mean, that was six, nine months out or something crazy like that. And so they had a long time to um, find ways to prevent their little tool for pushing people away from their businesses. But yeah, there was something beyond what people would want to happen. Um, they would say like, well, they meant well, but they wrote it wrong, so don't do this one. Well, and we're looking at it. The, the Initiative 300 that we're talking about, the right to rest, the repeal essentially of the mm -hmm. camping ban was the grassroots organizations that were working on that initiative raised like $160,000, I think. And then the business community that created the opposition to that raised like $2 million. And oh, yeah. this is where money comes into play, which is like... They just had more money to get their message out. And I I, I mean, Benjamin, I I hear you, but I also, uh, I think I, I agree with, with Connor a little bit in that like, if you ask the average housed person, they, they have perceptions about what they see. They're mm -hmm. not going on what experiences are. And there, it seems like even though the camping ban's not solving anything, we don't necessarily feel like we know what the solution is. Well, this is this is this is kind of we do know what the solution to uh, the camping ban is, and and it's housing. Yes, and it's expensive. Yes. Now, what happens with the general public is they're typically misinformed, and because they're misinformed, they are scared, and yes. so they don't know how to respond. And so this timidness that you're referring to, oh, there's there, there there's tents in my neighborhood. I understand that. And part of that is because they get misinformed from just about every source that they hear. Because typically what happens, um, you know, especially with like TV news, is uh, if, there's a, if there's a story about the camp camping ban or some sort of thing, the camera focuses on trash on the ground, right. the most grizzled person. And then they have some sort of- um, The syringe the, Then they have some sort of narrative. Tucker Carlson question, is this what's actually going on? And then the reporter will do the report. Typically the reporters do the reporting stuff. And then it goes back to the news office and they frame it again. And so the picture that goes in the general public's mind is very different than what's going on on the ground. It's also different than we've been talking a lot about how the city reports that stuff, uh, the business community about how they do that. So the business community's job is to market and sell their products. And so for things like the camping ban, they're going to market and sell you uh, all different kinds of stuff. And so the general public needs to get better information in order to make better decisions and to alleviate that fear. I yeah. mean, already we, we talked about having not very good data on the homeless community. Because if you ask a general person, you know, what a homeless person is like, they're going to mention things like drug and alcohol issues and whatnot. But, you know, um, about a third of the homeless community has, you know, uh, drug and alcohol issues by data. So that means two thirds do not. Right. Um, you know, and then when they go talk about homeless issues, they go to the one of the largest free drug and alcohol recovery centers um, in the city. Denver Rescue Mission, they are very proud of their new life program. Same thing with uh, Salvation Army. Those are drug and alcohol recovery centers. That is their primary goal. They have large, um, you know, overnight shelters as well. But that forms public opinion. One of the things that happened when we were forming Denver Homeless Out Loud was I was afraid that all of these social activists were going to go run around these drug and alcohol recovery centers and think like, this is the scope 
of, of, of the homeless community. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. There's a whole lot more of us out there. And here's where you go find them. Um, and, you know, and I was very passionate about go over here and you'll find these people and go over there. You'll find these. There are several different kinds of communities. You know, you go to a biker shop, you're going to find people that are leather, that are wearing leather and and, and motorcycle helmets. You know, you go to a drug and alcohol recovery center, you're going to find people that have issues with drug and alcohol. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. That's fair. Um, So looking to the future, um, Connor, we have a mayoral election coming up next year. And this issue is going to be, I think, at the forefront of it. Um, Do you have a sense of what that conversation is going to sound like after talking, you know, checking in with all these folks for the piece that you wrote, what do you think this is going to look like in this near future conversation? Yeah, I think homelessness is going to be the, if not the top, one of the top issues in the mayoral race discussion and also the city council races that are coming up too. each mayoral candidate in particular is going to have to come up with a very clear idea of this is what we should be doing. This is how we're going to do it. And they're also going to have to take a stance on the camping ban. My best guess is most of the candidates who are going to vie for mayor are going to not want to overturn the camping ban. And yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's one of the most consequential mayoral elections. Maybe they say that every, every mayoral election, but I think it, it is really consequential for Denver. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would say homelessness and housing's been the one yes. of the biggest issues. Several campaigns running. So at some point, um, you know, the general public is going to need to look at these people talking to this stuff and say, "This isn't going away." Right. Um, you need to really do something. <laughs> right. And so you need to be upfront with us about what's going on. That's one of the things why it's been really uh, refreshing working with uh, with Britta Fisher because she's upfront with what's going on and whatnot. And so like, all right, this is the mess we're dealing with and let's work on some solutions. I think the city finally has a rudder when it comes to figuring out where to go on homelessness. And I think host and Britta Fisher is that rudder and I don't think it's had that before going into a, a mayoral race. And so um, I am, I imagine that host is going to stick around for a long time. My, my hunch is that Britta Fisher is going to be the, um, the head of host into the next administration if, if she wants the gig. And so finally, there, there is a, a direction. Now, the question is, how do you how do you execute with that direction in mind? That's fascinating because I've always have to say I'm so skeptical because I feel like the city's response to things is to create an office for it with a weird acronym. But so then sometimes people get swept up in that. Like we don't talk about what they're actually doing. And it sounds like four or five times in the last 10 years when it comes to homelessness and housing. There's been a new. Denver's Road Home. Hope. No, there's. (laughs) There were so many missteps. And so it's like totally normal to be skeptical. But I think host is stable, stable. It has a a departmental budgeting authority. It is getting a ton of federal COVID relief money. And it has combined understanding that homelessness and housing are kind of one in the same. It has combined that under the same roof, whereas before they were disparate. And so now that's that's kind of the direction that you head in. And Benjamin, it sounds like 
you you have some faith in in host and Britain's mm-hmm. I mean there's bureaucracy kind of stuff but it's stable they have money their intent is to build housing and get people housed yeah yeah and I yeah they it it's not as fast as you would like and they don't do as much as you would like but um within the confines ba- steps, of, yeah you know and it's these are larger baby steps than usual Right, but host is the first time where the city's actually doing something rather than taking credit for other organizations that are trying to, you know, trying yeah. to do it within the w- within the scope of what they have available to get stuff done. But the city has the access to things that these private organizations don't have <laughs> the 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 federal um, you know COVID money and things sure. like that. And and hopefully, if the feds do their job better, they'll be more later to um, to really mm-hmm. deal with it. Can I just say one more thing? Yes. I think with with homelessness and um, camping ban, I mean, camping ban again is addressing a symptom of homelessness, and the the federal aspect is so important to address the root cause. I mean, we as a country have kind of made a policy choice to allow homelessness. It's it's a policy choice. You don't have to allow homelessness. You can make sure everyone's housed. And the the most important part about that is is like a massive federal plan to invest in housing and, and homelessness support. And until that's there, municipalities and even states can do um, kind of littler things, but it, it really has to be a nationwide effort mm-hmm. to get out of being okay with homelessness. And we've done it in the past. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. We've done it successfully in the past. Absolutely. So, if we get people housed and stable, good things happen. And we'll learn how to take care of each other and respect each other more. If we would just fund it, and we're you know, and we're si- we're sitting there now. Yeah, I'm just so curious to watch this election unfold. So, um, I'll definitely check back in with both of you, Connor Benjamin. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. You're welcome. That's all for this week here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were Paul Caroli, Alexander McMahon, and Carly Jones. Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. Our music is by Los Mocochetes, with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. If you haven't already, subscribe and rate five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, at CityCast Denver, and tell a friend about us next time you see them. You can sign up for our daily newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. Bye-bye. I just oh as always I was, I was like you gotta I, say goodbye not goodbye it's just like there's more <laughs>